0: And that operated, that happened, you know, on and on. So I had a feeling I was used. Then I finally decided I couldn't be used cause I was thinking about it. I said, I was aware of all this. So if I'm aware of it, I'm obviously not being used. It's only when I'm not aware of it, that I may be being used. And wrote it off and went in my own bag. I left school and I came back to school after a year. I was 16 then. And that during that year, I was moving in New York, in Harlem was living up there working you know seeing the housing so all that had some effect on me and then when I graduated the sit-ins broke out and that see now that was that was you know because the one thing that I knew from from very early age that no matter what Negroes did that white folks were running it I couldn't get away from that that was just a hard fact that no matter what Negroes did I don't care what Negroes said I never saw a Negro that said anything, you know, that white folks weren't behind it, unless he said it over a bottle of beer or something. But he didn't say it on TV. He didn't say it in the newspapers or anything, you know, unless white folks, it, except for the sit-ins, you know. Um, and reason was because I thought that they had decided to do a sit-in on the spur of the moment. That was what I guessed. So I figured white folks really weren't behind that and it was a good thing. Then it started happening all over the South. And uh, again, like Cortland, you know, see, I was looking, I had decided that the country had to be changed. And the question was, you know, whether or not, you know, I wanted to jockey myself in a position up top, see, to run the country and change it my way or whether I wanted to fight it from the outside. And, you know, all the way up from high, through high school, even during the first year or so when I came south, you know, I was still wrestling with that question. I wasn't sure whether or, not n- whether or not I should go back to college, say, and get a master's and a PhD and become a qualified Negro. And then when I got up top, then I could change the country like that, because I was sure see that I could get to the top and run things. I mean, You had this dream, the Horatio Alger dream. It wasn't a dream. I mean, I was looking for a way to change the country. And oh. I figured that... Uh, <laughs> the opposite of Horatio Alger. Everybody uh, dreams <laughs> of running <a> <laughs> And uh, oh, I was convinced that once I decided, if I decided that I wanted to run the country, that then I would move in a position to run the country. I mean, it was just a reality. But I had questions about whether I wanted to go through all the crap that took to get up there because you have to manipulate your way up there, see. And uh, so, and then the work in the South really has an effect, I think. I mean, because you, (coughs) at least I was fairly bitter in my own way, you know, towards a lot of things that I had seen. You know, you see the brutality, you know, so you feel like, you see a cop hit a woman, you feel like snatching (coughs) the billiards club from the cop. You see one guy blocking you from coming back from the county courthouse, if you feel like just hauling him off and hitting the guy in the stomach and give him a chop on the neck and laying him out and walk over him. You know, because you figure you can do that. You know, but I didn't know how long I could do that. So I just had to keep that up. And where the reason I don't think I exploded like that was because I had all these people around me. What Stokely describes as getting up in the morning to see sharecroppers. He's exactly right because you had all these people around you that you could really talk to. Most people talk on the periphery. You never talk to people. I had all these people that I could talk to about something very real, very concrete, so I could let lie that. And I really think it acts as a softening agent in terms of, say, potential explosion in yourself. I mean, that talk you have with sharecroppers and all that. So I spent the last three years doing exactly that and found out, you know, to learn there were some very basic truths because what I had to do then I had to ask myself, I think, you know, now I knew Mrs. Hamer, you know, when we canvassed the plantation and got her to go down to register to vote. And I know her now three years later, you know, after she's come back from Atlantic City. She's in the F D P. Perhaps you should, uh, I mean, should say a word about Fannie Lou Hamer, her name's mentioned
1: twice now, perhaps even more specifically about this remarkable woman. I know people saw her on television during the Democratic Convention. And this, uh, Lou, She represents something obviously quite powerful and profound in the South, doesn't she? And
0: we'll come back to, to ourselves, you know, in the beginnings.
2: Yeah.
0: She, you know, Negro Sharecropper grew up in Montgomery County and Sunflower Counties, Mississippi, essentially on the plantations.
2: All on
0: And we got her to go down in August the sixty two to register to vote in Sunflower County. You now when she got back home, the plantation owner knew about it in that space between the time it takes to get from the courthouse to back to the plantation, thirty miles away. I mean and she was told to get off the plantation at night, which well, she did. How she moved into was shot up, I mean, 16, 17, it was just riddled with bullets. She wasn't there, nobody was there. And she, at that point, became very active, I mean, it was like people in the Ruleville, where she was living at that were absolutely terrified because the shooting and the violence and what it acted to do, that terror, was just stop people from doing anything. It wouldn't go down the register. And like, you know, all we could do was just talk, you know, talk about anything under the sun, but just show that we were there. And like Mrs. Hamer was a very strong figure in that. I mean, because they and there's a difference between, you know, a local person talking, say, and a SNCC person talking. I mean, that's somebody they know and can plug into. And all that kinda of, it was a big help. She did that. You know, then moved into the Freedom Democratic Party, you know, again with all that energy she has and intelligence, you know, that just never had a chance to be used by her or by other people. I mean I mean, there was no way for her to use what she had. And which is a real problem with people anyway. People can't use what they have. And that she has worked out her away through the Freedom Democratic Party to use and give what she has to other people. And that's exactly the thing that I had to deal with. I mean I think in thinking about what I was doing in Mississippi in terms of whether or not to leave and move to some top position or stay was what was it in the time between say Mrs. Hamer lived on the plantation that day we first canvassed it and say ending with and. From that time to say the Atlantic City Democratic Challenge. I mean, what was, how had Mrs. Hamer changed? I mean, now, uh, how was she living in comparison now as compared to them? What was she doing? And whether or not it was possible to extend that in terms to other people. This leads, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's about it, really. Well, this leads
1: to uh, obviously the next step. Here are the three the insights each of you had from childhood on. Cortland Cox, uh, Charlie Cobb, and Stokely Carmichael, and then this question of whom do you see in the morning, here's a change in Fannie Lou Hamer that you saw, something was happening, then your big job then was to, aside from yourselves, your own development, you know, the natural instincts you have, you say, to suck, you know, when you're hit, and not to, to, the nonviolence of it, but also to instill in these people a sense of personal worth, isn't that it, you know? That is, they accepted the lot, isn't that it?
3: Well, I think that our main function is to develop opportunities or exper- I mean, or situations where people can experience and act that I think that they instill in themselves when they act. I mean, what Charlie was saying was that Ms. Hamer was able to use the energy and to act and to move, and therefore she was able to develop. And that was the one thing that I mean that?
2: See, on a broader scale, I mean, like, I find it very funny when people talk about the New South. I don't know what that means. They say about the changes that go on in the South. Now, I know that there have been no real structural changes in the South, but there has been a change in the South, and the change is within the people. Now, the change that I know about is the change within the Negro community. Now, there has been some change in the white community, I assume. I can't speak to that. But I can speak to the Negro community. And that's the type of change that's, of course, exemplified by Mrs. Hamer. Yeah,
0: see, there are two kinds of changes. See, now, I think that, say, in terms of the way the country's structured, the way the country allocates what it's to give to people, say, the government allocates what it's to give to people, uh, there can be changes in that. People obviously need decent housing, food, health facilities and all of that. And that there can be changes in what the people who have things to give give to people and they can give more. Um, now and maybe that's part of the change in Mississippi in addition to the change in attitude in the sense say that you have the poverty program, see, Um, and so some people and very few people, some people in the state are getting more than they usually got as a result of that program, but I don't think that in terms of really meeting people's need that that's going to be the significant thing that and this is the one thing that the structure say absolutely remains absolutely rigid on and that's the way decisions are made to give, the way the plan is laid out the to decide who's to be given what the way and how much. And, and the question <laughs> is, I mean, whether or not the, the people or the things or the whatevers mm. that make up the structure are going to be ever prepared you know, to uh, change in terms of its decision making apparatus. And what it's going to take comes in back to people. Comes to back to the theme changes. again, doesn't it, of the individual? In
1: this case, people themselves participating, acting, yeah. doing yes
2: yeah. Now, I think that's the difference between SNCC and the other organizations. Because what I found out from my readings in revolutions, and they certainly haven't been in any depth. But what I found out from things I've read. Readings <coughs> or revolutions? <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <All right. laughs> what I found out is that you have, you have a bunch of bad guys, and they're doing things bad, and they're robbing people, the poor people. So then the group, bunch of good guys, get together, and they say, We have to take over the bad guys and do things for the people. See? And so these bad guys and good guys, they go ahead and they start fighting and the good guys start involving some of the people in the fight, but they are still always on the top, see? And then they take over the bad guys, and then they become the good guys, and they may do good things, but then... These are the traditional groups you talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, these are yeah. traditional revolutionary groups. Yeah. But then, inevitably, the good guys, somewhere along the line, become bad guys again. And another got a, another group of good guys got to get up and fight. See, now, what I found about all that fighting is that the people who do those fightings are the qualified people. And that's what I found about some other civil rights groups, and some what you called would-be groups on the left. I don't like to label groups, but they all had a blueprint for freedom. Package revolutions. Yeah, they had their package revolutions, and they were going to give it to the Negro people. See, And Negro groups are going to do the same thing. Now, what we found out is that what you do is that you get those people in motion, the people we work with and once they get in motion that they themselves, you've got to have the faith in people that they don't have. Like when Charlie says about the intelligence of Mrs. Hamer. What I found out when I go across the country and speak to people, and they talk about Mrs. Hamer compared to Dr. King, let's say, they say Dr. King is an intelligent man, a brilliant leader, a profound man, a man of great intelligence and moral character. And then they say about Mrs. Hamer, they always say he's brilliant, he's intelligent, he's an author. Then they say about Mrs. Hamer, and they say she is so soulful, she is so honest, she is so good, she is so beautiful. so beautiful, yeah. right? And she sings, sings so well, yes. right? Now they never say that Mrs. Hamer yeah. is as intelligent I as could. is Dr. King. Now I know both of them, and I've moved in both those circles. And I'd say that Mrs. Tamer is just as, if not more intelligent, than is Dr. King. Now my own thinking, she's more intelligent because she hasn't been in that circle that Dr. King has been in, and she hasn't had to, to move in that circle. But nobody across the country has ever said to me that Mrs. Hamer is an intelligent person. And that's because Mrs. Hamer is illiterate.
1: Very revealing comment, I think. Go ahead. Sorry, it's very she's, revealing.
2: She is illiterate, see. And now that's what yeah. I found out about those things, that the people who had their... Illiterate radical, in the book sense In of the book word. sense, oh yeah. And what the people call the package revolutions, mm-hmm. they didn't trust the Miss Hamers because the Ms. Hamers were illiterate. The Miss Hamers didn't fulfill the, the criteria for the society which they were filling. But what they didn't realize was they were caught in the same trap because they were making those exact same criterias for their groups. And they were excluding people too.
3: See, see. I think that Ms. Hamer doesn't have the procedure. See, I think education is like a procedure. It's like the form that you have to fill out six times. I mean, you know, in order to... And if you don't use the correct words as you're using the correct forms or fill them out enough times in terms of the amount of verbiage you can use and so forth, that you're not considered intelligent. People look not at the substance, but at the procedure. And that's important. I mean, that goes back to what I, my feeling is that there have been no revolutions that I've known of, and I'm a history major and I went to Negro school, so that might be my decision. <laughs> 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 But I think that I mean the expe- ex- exactly Howard University
2: a Negro school <laughs> yeah,
3: a plantation <laughs> uh, uh, what happens is that I mean that in terms of revolutions, what happens, especially, I mean, traditional things like people talk about the Russian Revolution, French Revolution, Mexican... American. American, so (laughs) forth, is that there were few people who acted in their own interest, and that they continue to act in their own interest after that fighting was over. And it seems to me, like in Vietnam, or in the whole question of revolutions, that you fight to kill people. You can never fight to bring freedom, or Housing, or justice, or anything. You, I mean, you, you work on justice to bring justice. You work on housing to get better housing. You work on education to get a better education. I mean, you kill. You go to war or have revolutions to kill people. And that, I mean, that if we really, I mean, that's, I mean, my, that's my feeling about how those things develop. And I think that if we really want to. Really want to uh, start having some things that, I mean, in terms of what we feel that people need and so forth, is that number one, we have to stop, I mean, start working on a specific thing when we start working on it, and number two, stop looking for the procedure, I mean, and, and listen to the substance.
1: So it's the substance. Now, don't we come now to the core of what the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is about—the substance that there is—that in each, in in short, you want to eve enough, quote unquote, to have faith in people. Basically, it's what you're saying. It's the opposite of it, uh, and thus also, aren't you saying also that the means you use, the means is directly connected with the end—that it is nonviolence. That means you do not kill people, but through your particular technique, being human, having tremendous conflicts within yourself, somehow, I, I'm, this is, of course, always amazing to me, how you're able to uh, well, sublimate that. I don't quite understand. The
0: question, uh, very clearly, if in my own mind, uh, if you're talking about, say, change, say, in the country, that you're talking about people and getting them involved in changing things, which means that you have to, <coughs> It seems to me that you're talking about getting them to decide, you know, what has to be changed, you know, in what ways, and, you know, and what it's going to take to do that. Now, and what's implied in all that or implicit in all that, see, people are different. I mean, and so people have different things they're interested in doing and all of that and that there's, like, conflicts and all that. And then there's you, you know, and you're wrestling with, you know, whether or not you're going to impose, you know, what you think the change should be on on people. I mean, you want things changed, too. You're not satisfied, you know. You have ideas, you know. Now, how much of that do you impose, impose on people, you know? How much, you know, other people who get involved are you going to impose what they think on other people? How do you resolve, you know, all the conflicts in that? And that, I think that maybe the one thing, I mean, that, I think the thing that change this country lies in is people learning how not to impose. I mean, I think that's where real violence is, which is why I say politics is the most violent thing in the country. Imposition. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just violence doesn't have to be, you know, in a shotgun slaying, you know, on a, in a rural county in a southern town. I mean, violence, I've seen more violence in Chicago in the last week than I've seen in three years in Mississippi. And, uh, and it's all stems from the impositions that are placed on other people by other people at all levels that I think it just doesn't come from, say, the president. You know, he sort of does it nationally, but it also has its specifics locally too. And uh, I really think that that's, there's a lot of specific kinds of work we do You know, in that, but that's like one of the contexts in which the specifics of our work is set in. I didn't develop
2: that much further. I mean, in terms of my own thinking on the whole question of nonviolence is that what happens particularly within the Negro movement is it's going to become isolated, and that the people you blame for that aren't Negroes. See, I'm convinced that if tomorrow morning I got up, and Negroes said we're not going to, in the movement, say we're not going to be nonviolent anymore, I would never blame them. I'd blame the whole American society because they isolated them. I don't see how you can take a person who lives within a contextual society, a violent society, and expect that person to be nonviolent, and within respect to every other issue that's violent. I mean, if Cuba says something and we don't agree with Cuba, then we just blow her the hell off the map. I mean, we're the biggest and the baddest. We can do that. If we have trouble in Vietnam, why, we just send a million soldiers over there and shoot them up and drop bombs, because we can do that. Or if there's problem in the Dominican Republic, we do the same thing. And so our answer to all these questions is always one stock answer, shoot him. The same thing, with, and then on a local level, there's a policeman. Shoot him if he does something wrong. And then you bring it down even to more within the whole political structure when you talk about that violent thing. I mean, just how they view that. Everything in the society is violent, it's vicious. Except for one thing I find that all people in the country stand stocked on when you talk about the Negro movement. They must be nonviolent. Now, I don't see how Johnson can call me to fight in Vietnam and then tell me that I should shoot somebody who I don't know. Who I'm not in any way related to, except in the fact that we're all mankind, and I am related in that sense, and I'd like to talk about that too a bit later on, in terms mm-hmm. of what Charlie wrote a poem, and it has to do with uniforms, and I've related that in my own mind to what it means. But on the stock answer of the Negro, they all say the same thing you have to be nonviolent. And so the only people who are talking about nonviolence is a little group of people in the movement. And they've just been isolated. Now, if the country was serious about nonviolence, then what it'd have to do is to open up channels and really talk about that across the board for everybody. That would mean that Johnson would have to talk about nonviolence not only in the civil rights movement but in Vietnam.
0: It's more than that, even. See, it's one interesting thing that I've noticed. Say about SNCC is that my own. I think that say in terms of our day-to-day work, that see that the country defines in its own mind what that work is, you know, puts that in a little slot, labels that, you know, so therefore, you know, we're just kids, say, and you know, we can't last or something like that. Anyway, they define us, you know, within its own terms and then let us go on and do that work. You know, until the work starts to threaten them, then they move to control. Now they do the same thing, not just for SNCC, they do it for the Civil Rights Movement. See, I have my own views about what civil rights is and what it's about and all that, and I don't think that it agrees, say, with what President Johnson, who I think essentially articulates the, the country's attitude towards civil rights. I don't think it agrees with that, and I say that in order to be nonviolent, to be nonviolent and to be aspiring as Negroes to what Johnson and white America would have us as- aspire to is contradictory, And that if I was aspiring to that, that I couldn't be nonviolent, because everything that this country has acquired has been acquired violently. The way you move to the top in this country is by exploiting and destroying other people one way or the other. I mean, that's the way you move to the top. The way you run things in this country is by, you know, controlling other people. I mean, just everything, you know, is contradictory to the whole concept of nonviolence. Now if we as Negroes are supposed to—even that applies to the vote that vote, the way it's used, misused by the politicians is violent and the Chicago ghetto speak to that. So in terms of what Johnson says that we're doing, there's just absolutely no way to be nonviolent, you know, and that he really, you know, I assume see that in the press there's been, you know, this really hostile attack towards SNCC's radicalism, quote, irresponsibility, quote, disruptiveness, et cetera, disorganization, depending on what area of the political spectrum you're in. Um, and it really, all, you know, in terms of violence or nonviolence, that the country ought to be thankful, I mean, for our radicalism or for our refusal to accept their definitions and they might learn from it in terms of being able to look at what things are rather than what they are told things are. You
1: you know, Charlie Cobb, as you're talking, I can't help but think of what Stokely said almost about 45 minutes ago about thankful for your true responsibility of these white guys who were taking these tickets, these drab jobs replaced by machines, in a sense what you're doing is seeking to give them a meaning to their lives, too, eventually through this. Isn't this what it amounts to, really?
3: Well, yeah. I, I think that, in essence, we, we ultimately try to do that. I mean, we have to talk to human needs. And I'd like, in that, in that instance, to, to relate something that happened to me in Detroit about two weeks ago. I was walking. I was walking down the street, uh, and the police sirens came from all around. And there was one guy who was sitting on the car, who was, I guess, drunk. And the police told him to move, and he didn't move fast enough. So they began to beat on him. And then another guy they threw down the stairs because he protested. And then this happened to another, a third guy. He got beat up too. And I was walking on, and one of the things that Charlie was talking about, aspiring to be on top of the society, I mean, one of the things that flashed through my mind, and said, I said to myself, suppose I wanted to go to law school and pass the bar, I should stay out of this situation and be silent and be quiet and and that in order for me to, to to aspire in a society, even if I wasn't violent, I would have to watch the violence go on and be silent. And so I decided to talk to the police officer who had just uh, been involved in this situation and tell him that as a person, as a human being, I disagreed with what he was doing and I didn't like it and that I thought that was wrong. And, I mean, he just couldn't understand that. He just thought that this was, I mean, giving him lip, and that I had to be arrested because I was resisting and disturbing a police officer in the performance of his duty. And one of the things that the Detroit papers did was said, well, if this was a civil rights issue, it would be all right, but these are nothing but hoodlums and these people, civil rights, quote. Just happened, quote in quotation marks, and that they were just around to stir trouble up. And throughout that, when and throughout that scene, I mean, a number of things. I mean, that I mean, the police kept saying, "Well, if I was out there, you'd be in the morgue or the hospital." I mean, they just, I mean, just, I mean, that that whole thing about that how you stop people or control people is to shoot them. I mean, and to, and I mean, one of the things that I learned in ROTC class when I was going to school was. That the purpose of, uh, <laughs> of any army is to destroy the will to fight. And the, a cop I was talking to in Washington, D.C., said, I mean, you're told to treat everybody as a criminal, anybody, I mean, when you look at them. And the thing that I was reminded of was once in Itabina, Mississippi, where a guy got up, you know, after sitting down and listening to the discussion, and he got up and said, us colored people have been using our mouths to do two things to eat and say yasa. It's time we said no. And I kept thinking about that in terms of, I mean, wha- what you have to do when you see things like that in society. I mean, too often we just use our mouths to eat and just say yassa. I mean, many of us don't feel that we can act and do.
2: I wanted to. uh... <clears throat> pick up a little with some of the things Cortland and Charlie are talking about and go back to uh, uniforms and, and isolation. I mean, talking about Charlie's poem, and that's what we called it when we published it. You talked about
1: how's it go? Do you know how it goes? Well, no, it's, oh, it's
2: a very lengthy poem. I think it's an excellent
3: poem. Two this is, per- is this a Charlie Cobb poem? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's about 50, what can you, words. just
1: to do a verse perhaps, I mean this sounds ridiculous to ask,
3: well, just
1: an idea, a flavor
0: of it.
2: Uh, I don't think I'm your PR man Stokey's my PR man
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a relevant, I guess, to what we're talking about section If I can remember it right. See, I don't remember things like that. sort of improvising right? the, the cops that have shot all the people, white and black, that they have shot Have shot because they were given guns And told it's alright to kill people sometimes And we have been taught it's alright people to be killed by the cops in the US Army like in Vietnam where our interests are being threatened by the disorder of the people in Vietnam who don't like us and don't want us and who think they can run their own country and besides they're not even white those people in Vietnam who don't want us to fight in their country and blow it up with bombs like Birmingham also a place where little children come down, blown apart, into pieces, because they're the enemy, too. That's just part of it.
2: Now, see, the thing that's very relevant in the whole poem is about uniforms and how you respect uniforms. I was taught when I was in college that, and I guess they still talk about it in history books, that the best thing that happened to civilization, Western civilization, was nationalism. nationalism. Is that it? Yeah. This, what this Israeli, was it? Well, who was the f- Bismarck? No, who was that famous German cat? I Bismarck. It was Bismarck yeah. with nationalism. Hey, I forgot. I remember That's my true. history. A lot of the yeah, I yeah. thought I'd forgotten my scholarly stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Get to me. I would trade you right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I would send them a letter. Thank you for my degree. <laughs> proceed. You go to yeah. Howard? Yes, I went. To, we all went to Howard. <laughs> <way>. Oh, you all? <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> we all turned the school upside down. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm quite well, what I what I learned about yeah. nationalism was that. I thought at that time that it wasn't really the greatest thing, because it segregated man. Now this is how I view the whole thing in Vietnam. I don't think that a man could kill another man if he thought of him as a man like himself. But I think a man can kill a man if he didn't think of him as a man. Now that isn't as complicated as it sounds, really,
1: well, it's not complicated at all.
2: If I put on a uniform and I'm called an American, then everybody views me as an American. And if somebody else puts on a uniform and they're called a Viet Cong, then they're viewed as a Viet Cong. I never see their faces, I never look into their eyes, I see the uniform and they're labeled a Viet Cong. And then you've got other people dressed up in uniforms and they're labeled Russians. And then you say the Viet Cong are your enemy, the Russians are your enemy, the Chinese are your enemy, and whoever and you learn to distinguish these guys by their uniforms. Now, you can't ever a look at their faces because they're men, and you can't destroy men because that's sort of a self-destruction thing. But you can destroy the Viet Cong, and you can destroy the Russian because you're not destroying men. You're destroying a Viet Cong, you're destroying a Russian. Now, if we didn't have that nationalism, let's say if we had, in reality, mankind, it would be hard for someone to go to Viet Cong and kill a man. And then the problem would be even more complicated if they didn't wear uniforms, I mean if they were just men. Right. I now mean, you might be able to differentiate it, as you do in America, by race, see. So that a white man in Mississippi, a state trooper in Mississippi can shoot, oh a state trooper in Alabama can shoot a Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson, and that that can be dismissed because he's a uniformed man too, and that Jimmy Lee Jackson wears another kind of uniform, his skin. His skin. His but he is the enemy. So what you have to do, see now that really goes way across lines. I mean that's something that this country can never start to talk about under the foreign policy that it now has. And now that comes down to also isolation, see. So you can isolate people according to the uniforms they wear. You can isolate a Viet Cong, you can isolate a Russian. And now you, how you do it within the system. Now within the country itself, you isolate people by a couple of things.